Hey guys, has anybody ever had the guts to tell you the five most life-altering words ever spoken? And I'm not talking about Chick-fil-A is coming to Mendham. No, these words are, well, they're usually yelled uh, more than uttered, and, and oftentimes they kind of come with maybe a shoe or an object flying at your head. Those words, those five, it's not all about you. It's not all about you, which is a truth that, well, like most truths, we, we see to in our mind. I mean, at some level, I know that's true, but experientially, we find it difficult to believe, Right? Because the truth is that all of us emerge into this world with a very me-first focus, with good reason, right? That's how infants survive. What two-week-old is thought to himself, you know, I'm, I'm starving here, my diaper's filthy, but heck, I know mom and dad are beat, I'm just going to hold it for a little while. The problem for, well, for most of us to one degree or another, is that when it comes to that me-first mentality, it's hard to get over. I mean, I mean, after all, it's with my two eyes that I see the world, and it's with all of my filters that I process all of my experiences. And so every once in a while, it's actually pretty valuable for somebody to remind us, sometimes it'd be better if it was done gently, that everything is not about us. The truth is, and again, we know this, we are not the star upon which the universe orbits. Now, for most of us, what me first thinking can do to a relationship, we know it's toxic. But if you think a narcissistic tendency is dangerous to worldly relationships, you should see the number that it does on spiritual ones. Guys, welcome to week three of our home church series, Known, where we're taking a deep dive into one of the great Psalms from Israel's great king, King David. Now, so far, we've seen David process through two of God's incommunicable attributes. Those are attributes of his that he reserves for himself. David's rejoiced that God is omniscient, which means that he's all-knowing. His knowledge is full and complete about everything for all of time. And last week, we discovered, I think in pretty scientific and, and experiential ways, that God is omnipresent which means that God's fully everywhere and all at once, in all of time, fully and completely in every place and in everything. Today, today we're going to explore this third attribute of God's. And if frankly, this is an attribute that changed David's life. If fully understood, it could change your life. But it's an attribute that frankly, oftentimes in reading this, this psalm, we miss. And the reason is because we tend to not just live life with an it's all about me mindset, but we tend to read the Bible and we tend to relate to God with an it's all about me mindset. Let me explain. The portion of Psalm 139 that we're about to plunge into is going to be very, very familiar to a whole lot of you. Its home is on a thousand t-shirts and coffee mugs. And the reason is that unlike other portions of the Psalm, this section has been pulled out for various and for valid reasons, as you'll see in a minute. But because of our filters, what we tend to miss is this one giant life-altering transcendent point. And so now, let's jump in. Having just spoken of God's omnipresence, David continues, For you created my inmost being, he writes. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. 
Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them even came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I'm still with you. Now, if we were sitting in the church building this morning, I would actually ask you guys to raise your hand. How many of you have heard these lines before? And the truth is, whether you're from a faith background or not, you most likely have, and for two very valid reasons. The first reason is this portion of David's writings has become so, or the reason it's become so ubiquitous is that it's, it's not the only teaching, but it's really the preeminent biblical teaching on the sanctity of human life. And as David recounts, life in all of its forms, from conception in his mother's womb, where he says that God knit him together, and that Hebrew word there for knit, it carries with it the concept of God literally weaving in a very personal and intimate way David's body together. It's the same Hebrew root word used by Jeremiah when God said that, quote, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. To pay homage to our series once again, you were known by God before you were even conceived by your mama. And if you want to understand how, how that could be, go back to last week's teaching on time and space. But again, that's how intimate God's knowledge of you is. But, but it's not just in your forming. David says, you weren't just involved in my beginnings. He says that, yes, your eyes saw my unformed body, but he goes on. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Guys, in other words, God isn't just involved in our creation, but God is involved in every day of our lives. Put simpler, it was not just your beginning that was ordained. You have an ordained ending. Your life did not begin without his involvement, and your life will not end without his involvement. You see, God is sovereign. That means that nothing happens that God does not decree or allow. Everything is under his control. I heard someone say this week that it's funny, we, we kind of use this concept, actually these specific words, as a threat, right? You better watch it, buddy, because your days are numbered. But here's the truth. That really, if, if understood, is, is a tremendous comfort. God numbers our days. Not us, not others, not accident or sickness or disease. You never have to fear going into a doctor's office and getting a bad prognosis. There is nothing that doctor can tell you that's going to change the number of your days. I mean, he might be able to tell you things you don't know about your health, but there's nothing that he can do to change the ordained number of your days. And I have to tell you, if you really embrace that, it's incredibly comforting. You, according to David, were never a meaningless blob of cells. And according to David, you will never be a purposeless, forgetful old person. Your life from beginning to end has been ordained by God, and not randomly, 
but for his purposes and for his glory and because he knows you and he loves you. Paul, he explained it to the Greek philosophers in Athens this way. From one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their land. And why did God do this? In some sense, think, think about this with me. In some sense, why were you born where you were born? And why were you born when you were born? Well, Paul answers that. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he's not far away from any of us. Guys, it turns out this is not just a verse about God's omnipresence, but about God's sovereignty. Your days are numbered by God in order to provide you with the very best chance you have, because he knows you, the very best chance for you to come to know him. Second reason this part of the psalm is so popular, and this goes back to how we tend to approach the scriptures in general and our relationship with God in particular, through that kind of me first mindset. David writes that you created my innermost being, you knit me together in my mother's womb, and then he says, I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Fearfully and wonderfully made. There may not be four more plucked words from the pages of the Bible than those four words. T-shirts, coffee mugs, picture frames with babies in them. You name it, we have slapped Psalm 139, verse 14. Well, at least only the first part of verse 14. We've slapped that verse on everything. Christian bookstores, back when there were Christian bookstores, they could have had an entire Psalm 139, verse 14 section. Author Jen Wilkin hilariously states, had me cracking up this week, that her goal was to reclaim Psalm 139, verse 14 back for all of us. She was speaking about all the perpetual misuses of the verse, uh, saying it's trotted out, quote, to help us solve all of our body image issues or all of our feelings of insignificance. It's the feeling on the day after Christmas when your pants don't fit anymore. So as you're struggling to pull them on, you kind of yell out one, Psalm 139, verse 14. It's going to be all right because I'm still a daughter of the king. And yet, here's the truth. We've spent no time at all focusing on the king. She said the misuse of this verse boiled over for her once at a women's conference where every breakout was about this same verse and each one of them had a different kind of self-esteem session tied to it. What put her over the top was the third session where, and I'm going to quote from her here to keep me out of trouble, quote, the speaker got crazy. At the end of her talk, she instructed all of the women in the room to stand up and to take our hands and place them, this is how she put it, over our uteruses, or maybe it's our uteri, and to pronounce a blessing over them. She would go on, she says, you know, I'm one of these people who when the person leading worship on Sunday says, put your hands in the air, I'm like, um, probably not. Or if they say, you know, lean over and shake the hand of the person next to you, I'm like, I really just don't feel like I should. And so she says, here's this woman telling us all to put our hands over our uteruses, and it's this room full of women, and I start to have these two crazy thoughts hit me simultaneously. The first one was, you know, this is kind of an older crowd. I'm not sure all of us still have that. 
And the second thought, which was even more alarming than the first was, if this is what's going on in the women's breakout section, what's the corresponding blessing at the men's conference? So she concluded with this. It was ridiculous. It was comical. And it would be funny to me wholeheartedly if it had not so made light of the beauty of a psalm whose whole intent was not to make much of me, but to make much of God. Guys, ladies, you are fearfully and wonderfully made, but that is not the transcendent point of David here. Psalm 139 is not intended as a celebration of the self, but rather a celebration of God. It's not a psalm about me at its heart, fearfully and wonderfully made. It's a psalm about my maker, fearful and wonderful. It's a psalm meant to inspire awe. David, by the time he makes it this far in the psalm, he's already acknowledged God's uh, 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 omniscience. He's reflected on God's omnipresence and in relating these attributes to his being in creation and all the days of his life being ordained, now David rejoices in God's omnipotence. He's discovered that God is omnipotent, meaning simply that God is all-powerful. This is a truth some of you might know. Heck, some of you already have your Christmas music playing and you're singing this truth, right? Handel's Alleluia Chorus, which Handel took right, this, this verse right out of Revelation, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. When theologians describe God as omnipotent, they're saying that God is all-powerful. God can do what God wants to do. It means he's not subject to physical limitations like we are. Being omnipotent, God has power over everything. Wind, water, gravity, physics. God's power is infinite and God's power is limitless. David was getting this. God decided, he realized, when he would be born. He, he numbers my days. But David also understood it wasn't just about him. I mean, the, the truth is, verse 14 doesn't say, I am, I'm amazing because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. It says, I praise you, not me. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. In fact, he goes on, it's not just me. Your works, all of them in all of creation are wonderful, David says. I know that full well. David is awed by God's limitless and boundless power. It was, it was in understanding God's omnipotence that led him to praise. It was in comprehending God's might that David comes to this fully transformative experience of God. But David's not alone. Awe is a thread that runs through the entire biblical narrative. Frankly, it might be the key to understanding and relating to God and regaining Regaining our sense of awe is what can transform us. Guys, in the scriptures, there are 53 references to awe. 92 to amazing, 22 to astonishing, 38 to reverence, and 109 to wonder. 
And that's not even counting related words like fear, afraid, tremble, which often refer to awe experiences. Awe always plays a central role in transformation. And it appears in some of the most significant stories in the Bible. For instance, uh, Jesus, after he rebuked the wind, the disciples, do you remember? They were described as being, quote, in fear and amazement. The women who found the tomb empty were described as trembling and bewildered. Those first few filled with the Holy Spirit in Acts were described as amazed and perplexed. Saul's companions were speechless when Jesus appeared, and I think it would be fair to say that Paul's conversion to Christianity involved being awestruck. Maybe the writer of Proverbs really knew what he was talking about when he wrote, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Guys, I have to ask you a question this morning. When was the last time you were in awe of anything? Guys, I mean like literally goosebumps awe. It's funny that New York Times in a piece highlighting a lot of recent studies being done on the concept of awe wrote this. Here's a curious fact about goosebumps. In many non-human animals, goosebumps, that physiological reaction in which the muscles surrounding hair follicles contract, occur when individuals, along with other members of their species, face a threat. We humans, by contrast, we humans get goosebumps when we experience, or we can get them, when we experience awe, that often positive feeling of being in the presence of something vast that transcends our understanding of the world. Did you know that in all of God's creations, we are the only things created that can experience awe? The historical meaning of awe, it, it implies a, a potent emotional experience. The verb to awe, it stems, it stems from a 13th century word, which literally translates fright or terror. According to German theologian Rudolf Otto, awe consists of two intertwined components. I really like this. One aspect is a sense of trembling, right? Fear, which comes from a perception of being the presence of something uncanny, overpowering, and vibrantly alive. Second, though, there's mystery, which typically leads a person to fascination. A, a general term used by Otto to refer more specifically to feelings of being astonished, thunderstruck, or dumbfounded. This is amazing because science is rediscovering the power of awe. In the past several years, a great deal of attention has now been directed towards the study and the benefit of awe. For example, awe uniquely is a unique predictor and indicator of the body's inflammatory response. It's implicated in the onset and progression of various chronic diseases, cardiovascular diseases, depression, it enhances or enhances critical thinking, and it may reduce post-traumatic syndromes. Einstein himself summed it up this way. The most beautiful thing we can experience is the mysterious. He to whom this emotion is a stranger who can no longer pause to wonder and stand wrapped in awe is as good as dead. Now, I wound up pretty deep down a rabbit hole this week looking at all these studies on awe. It really is fascinating, but there are, are there, and there are a lot of them, but there's almost a universal conclusion drawn about awe. Awe always awakens altruism. 
One writer concluded that awe imbues people with a different sense of themselves, one that is smaller, more humble, and part of something larger. He would go on, our research finds that even brief experiences of awe, such as being amid beautiful tall trees, it leads people to feel less narcissistic and entitled and more attuned to the common humanity people share with one another. In the great balancing act of our social lives between the gratification of self-interests and a concern for others, fleeting experiences of awe redefine the self in terms of the collective and orient our actions towards the needs of those around us. Think about this. Awe, if you reflect on it, it's the emotional summation of Jesus' great commandment. You're to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, and strength which in a sense evokes awe and leads rightly to loving your neighbor as you love yourself. Isn't it funny or maybe ironic that a psalm that was written to lead us towards a sense of awe and away from narcissism has been used so often, and this is why I, I have to believe that we have a spiritual enemy, to take our eyes off of God and away from awe and put them right back on ourselves. And so here's the thing. There may be a sense in which all experiences are beyond our control and, and involve an element of surprise. I, I get that. But that, guys, does not mean that we should not cultivate awe as part of our spiritual lives, as a spiritual discipline. You know, David did. When I consider your heavens, the works of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you've set in place, what is mankind that you're mindful of them? human beings that you care for them. But it wasn't just David. God told Job in all of his pain and confusion, listen to this, Job. Stop and consider God's wonders. And so, with the time I have left, that's what I want to do for a few moments. You know, we really are fearfully and wonderfully made. Did you know that within the first month after conception, a a baby's first nerve cells have formed and his face begins to take shape. Blood cells are beginning to develop. Circulation begins. The heart tube also forms and, and the heart beats 65 times a minute by the end of the fourth week. And yet, at this point, the baby is just one-fourth of an inch long. In, in the second month, the face continues to develop. The ears begin to form. Buds that will become arms and legs begin to take shape as well as the fingers and the toes. Bones begin to replace cartilage. The heartbeat can be detected at the end of the sixth week. And still, after all of that, the baby is only one inch long and weighs one thirtieth of an ounce. Guys, by the end of just the third month, the baby is already fully formed. And from this point, it's just going to mature. He can open and close his fists and mouth but is still only four inches long and weighs one ounce. It's not just in utero, though. You really are fearfully and wonderfully made. Every second, more than 100,000 chemical reactions take place in your brain. Your brain has 10 billion nerve cells to record what you see and hear. That information comes to your brain through the miracle of the eye, which has 100 million receptor cells in each eye. 
Together, the system makes the equivalent, ready for this, of 10 billion calculations a second before an image even gets to the optic nerve. Once that image reaches your brain, the cerebral cortex has more than a dozen separate vision centers in which to process it. Guys, your tear ducts, did you know this? They supply a bacteria-fighting fluid to protect your eye from infection. But the tears that fight irritants differ from the tears of sadness, which contain 24% more proteins. That's not to mention the miracle of the ear, how it translates sound waves and a meaningful speech and uh, touch, taste, smell. You really are fearfully and wonderfully made. You know, parts of your brain regulate voluntary matters, such as muscle coordination and thought processes. Other parts of the brain control involuntary processes, such as digestion, glandular secretions, the rate at which your heart beats, etc. You ever think about this? How did it just accidentally happen that your body could speed up your heart rate to the proper speed to meet increased oxygen demand when you're exercising, but slow it down when that need is met? One square inch of your skin has 625 sweat glands, 19 feet of blood vessels, and 19,000 sensory cells. They're all working in coordination with your brain all at once to maintain your body at a steady 98.6 degrees despite the weather conditions. You really are fearfully and wonderfully made. You know, your stomach has 35 million glands, which secrete just the right amounts of juices to allow your body to digest food and convert it into stored energy for your muscles. But to avoid digesting itself, your stomach produces a new lining every three days. Your body is an efficient machine. To ride a bicycle for an hour at 10 miles an hour, it requires only 350 calories. That's the energy equivalent of, of only three tablespoons of gasoline. You really are fearfully and wonderfully made. You, you have more than 200 bones. Each one of them shaped for its particular function, connected intricately to one another through lubricated joints that cannot be perfectly duplicated today by modern science. More than 500 muscles connect to these bones. Some of them obey willful commands. Others perform their duty in response to unconscious commands from your brain. They all work together to keep us alive. The heart muscle beating in your chest beats 103,000 times each day, pumping your blood cells a distance of 168 million miles. Couple with that, your lungs breathe in just the right amount of life-giving oxygen, about 438 cubic feet a day, which just happens to be mixed in the right proportions, about 20% oxygen, 80% nitrogen, in our atmosphere. Each of the other vital organs and glands in your body, it works in complex conjunction with the other to sustain life, which science can't create. Science can't even explain. I haven't even gone into the complexity of the human cells. A single human chromosome, one DNA molecule, contains 20 billion bits of information. How much is that? What would be its equivalent? Well, it was written down in an ordinary printed book in modern human language. 20 billion bits are the equivalent of about 3 billion letters. If there are approximately six letters in an average word, the information content of a human chromosome corresponds to about 500 million words. If there are about 300 words on an ordinary page of printed type, this corresponds to about 2 million pages. 
If a typical book contains 500 such pages, the information content of one single human chromosome corresponds to 4,000 volumes. You really are fearfully and wonderfully made. But that's not the point. It's like Augustine observed. Men go abroad to wonder at the heights of mountains, at the huge waves of the sea, at the long courses of the rivers, at the vast compass of the ocean, at the circular motions of the stars, and they pass by themselves without wondering. Church, friends, I want you to discover what David rejoiced over. God is not just omniscient. Yeah, he knows everything. God is not just omnipresent. Yes, he is everywhere, but God is omnipotent. He is all-powerful. He is all-good, and he is all for you. He knows you, and he can be found. I'm going to leave you with one last thought that I hope will increase your awe factor a bit this week. God is all-powerful. But there actually is only one thing that God, with all of his omnipotence, all of his power, cannot do. I mean, think about it, right? God can cause epic storms and, and God can cease endless wars. God can raise up kings and God can put down whole armies. God can split atoms and God can split seas. But with all of God's power and all of God's ability, there is actually though only one thing in all of creation that God cannot do. And ironically, it's the one thing he wants the most. And it's also the one thing that sets Christianity apart from every other religion on the face of the earth. You see, guys, as, as I heard somebody say this week, you know, he can give things to you and he can take things from you. He can make you obey him, and he can make you fear him. There is only one thing that God cannot do. God cannot make you love him. And it's the thing he wants most. And so, he knows you. And because of his love for you, he's made himself known. And now the ball is in our court. The question is, will we continue to live like, you know, it's all just random and coincidence, eyes closed, super busy, you know, got a lot of things going on, fearful about what's going to happen today or what tomorrow might bring? Or, or, like David did, like Job was commanded, could we stop and listen and consider, just for a short amount of time, consider God's wonders and invite them into our lives. Now, I have some homework for you guys if you're interested on how to rediscover awe this week. It's going to be in the, in the study guide for week three over at mhcc.life. But my prayer for you in the meantime is that as you awaken to the omnipotence of God, and as you begin to experience the awe of God, that you would find him as, I love how Mark Ali in a great and terrible love described him, that you would discover him to be most high, 
utterly good, utterly powerful, most omnipotent, most merciful, most just, deeply hidden, yet most intimately present, perfection of both beauty and strength, stable and incomprehensible, immutable and yet changing all things, never new, never old, but making everything new.